All right, if you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12, we're back in the Gospel of Mark again, and we're hoping to finish the Gospel Mark on Easter Sunday. But as we delve into the passage we're looking at today, it's only about four verses or so, I want to prime your minds a little bit before we get into this passage. You see, the scriptures teach us that God is not like us. Or better said, that although we are created in the image of God, we are not like him. And what do I mean by that? Or what am I referring to? And I'm referring to this in the sense that our thoughts are not like his thoughts. And our ways are not like his ways. In fact, the way that God thinks and acts is so different from ours as a human species that God actually paints a picture for us of the scale of how different we really are in these things. In Isaiah 55 verse 9, we're told, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we see this, this gap between the way we think and the way God thinks and the way we do things and the way God does things. And so as his children, we must learn to think the way he thinks or by faith accept what we cannot understand in the way that he operates differently than we do. And the way that he sees things differently than we do. And so with that ruminating in the backs of your minds, I want to confess to you this morning that the passage that we're looking at today, I find it strange that God would put this passage within the Gospel of Mark where he did. The passage that we're looking at is this finds itself in a strange place. If you look at the, the passages before and the passages after, you see, Jesus is only a day or two away from being crucified, and it's here that he chooses to place this short and somewhat obscure story. But his ways and his thoughts are higher than mine. And so we'll trust him that he has put it here for his good purposes. And so with that, let's read Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And here's what we read. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Lord, would you help us understand this passage today in Jesus' name? 
This story takes place within the temple of Jerusalem. As I said, it's Jesus about a day or two away from being crucified. And Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts. Now the temple had four courts or courtyards, if you will, surrounding the actual temple. And if you went to the, the court that was the furthest out from the temple, this was known as the court of the Gentiles. This is a place where the Gentiles were permitted to come in and to worship God and to pray. And yet, interestingly, the Jewish people did not welcome them even within the courtyard of the Gentiles. And so to, to, to kind of show this, what the Jews had done is they had taken this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and turned it into the marketplace where they were selling animals for sacrifices at the temple. Now think about this. During the Passover, which they celebrated every year, People would come from all over for the seven-day festival, and they would sacrifice somewhere in the neighborhood of over 250,000 lambs in seven days in that one temple. So this lets you know the size of the operation that was happening in the court of the Gentiles. There was no room for the Gentiles to worship. It had been replaced by the marketplace of selling sacrificial animals. And so there was actually no room for the Gentiles to worship. And now this begins to help us and give us the understanding of one of the reasons why Jesus went in and overthrew the, the tables of the money changers and threw out the people of the marketplace. Because the Gentiles were not able to come in and to worship God within the courtyard of the temple that was designed for them. The next step in, the next courtyard a little closer to the actual temple was called the court of the women. Now, Gentiles were not permitted to go beyond the court of the Gentiles and they were not even permitted within the court of the women and only Jewish women and Jewish men were allowed in this place. In fact, for a Gentile to walk past the courtyard of the Gentiles into this courtyard was to risk death. But only Jewish men and women were allowed beyond this court. Now beyond the court of the women was one that was called the court of Israel. The place where only Jewish men were permitted to go. So this was now the third courtyard closest, or the, the one that was almost the closest to the temple. Women were not permitted in here, only Jewish men. And beyond that, you had the court of the priests. And only priests were permitted within this courtyard, and it's within this courtyard where the temple itself was located. So nobody except for the priests ever really got close to the temple. And it's within these three courts, the courts of the Gentiles, the courts of the women, and the court of Israel or the court of men, where Jesus would come in and teach the people. Not even within the inner courts of the priests, just those three outer courts. 
And the passage that we're looking at today tells us that Jesus came in and he sat down opposite the treasury. Now, the treasury was located in the court of the women. The treasury were boxes where people would come and deposit their financial donations to the temple. And Jesus has been teaching within, the, within these different courts. And he's taking a break from teaching and he sits down in the court of the women right across from where the treasury boxes are. And evidently, Jesus has been sitting there for a while. He's been watching. Because we read that he observed many rich people put in large sums. And what's interesting with these, with these donation boxes or these treasury boxes, if you will, there were big chests, if you will, that sat on the ground. But on top, the, the actual place where you put your donation is one was in the shape of a, of a trumpet or a horn, if you will, made out of, I don't know if it was brass or metal. And they didn't have paper money like we do. So when you put your donations or your offering into these, it made a loud sound. So the more you put in the louder the sound, which was an indicator that I'm a big giver, right? Well, so Jesus has watched these people, wealthy people come in and dump in big, big sums of money. But then a woman comes along and she gives an offering that catches Jesus's attention. Now, we're filled in with a few of the details about this woman. Firstly, we find out that she's a widow. Secondly, we're told that she's poor. We know this because the passage tells us so. But more than that, we're told how much her offering was. She put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So she walks up to the treasury, and she puts in her offering, and all you hear is ding, 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 ding. I can imagine if she had had any form of pride like I do, she would have been embarrassed to put her offering in because it would have been a little ding compared to some of the ones that came and poured in all their coins. So here we read that what she put in surmounted to the amount of a penny. Now, many of you will actually see in the footnotes of your Bibles that she gave what was referred to as a lepta, which was worth a quadrantes. Now, Part of my time here is trying to make sure we understand the scriptures properly. So I had to sit and do math this week. So you could be rightly informed as to how much this was. Um, now it's at the footnote of the bottom of your Bibles. A quadrantus, we're told, was the value of 164th of a day's wage for a laborer. So to help us understand how much he gave in our context, if you will, if you were to have a minimum wage paying job here in Ontario today, and you worked eight hours a day, a quadrantis would be equal to about 
$2 before taxes. That's what she has. She has about $2. She has a toonie. One cling when she throws it in to the offering box. Verse 44 tells us that that's all that she had. This woman was truly poor. Destitute really is what she was. She had $2 to her name. That's not what she had left over from her day's wages. This was all she had. And she gives it as an offering to the temple. And it's in this moment that Jesus seizes another teaching opportunity for his disciples. Verse 43 tells us, And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Jesus has been sitting and watching. Many rich people have come and have given abundantly. But Jesus didn't call his disciples over and say to them, hey guys, look at the generosity of the wealthy people. Look at how they are giving abundantly. He doesn't do that. But it was when this poor, destitute woman comes along who had a tuny to her name This caught his attention to such a degree that he calls his disciples over because there's an important lesson to be learned. And what was the lesson? This poor widow had put in more, more than all those who had been contributing to the offering box that day. Now, before the disciples can ask Jesus' logic as to how a penny or a toonie can be more than all that the wealthy had given, Jesus tells them why. Verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything She had all she had to live on. You see, what the wealthy gave, even though they gave a lot, it didn't actually have an impact on their daily living. Their life was not affected in any way, even with the amounts that they gave. They still had plenty left over to pay their loans, to pay their rent or their mortgage, to pay their bills without any concern about where their next meal might come from. The only thing it did was dent their savings or their investments a little. But it actually came to no cost 
to their daily lives. No sacrifice, no effect upon them daily. But for this poor widow, when she gave her tunie, it came at the cost of everything because it really was all she had. This was the money for her next meal. This was the money for her rent. This was the money for her unpaid bills. This was the money for the taxes waiting to be paid. And instead, she gives it to the temple. And the reason that Jesus says that she gave more than all that the others had given is because the others gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. Now, I've spent time thinking through what exactly Jesus wanted his disciples to learn from this passage. What's the takeaway from this? Or what, how is this supposed to impact us? How is this supposed to affect us, Lord, with what we're learning here? Not just as disciples, but consequently for you and for me. And I want you to pay attention to several variables here. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't actually give them, actually give them, uh, tell them what the lesson is, what the takeaway is? How does this apply to my life? He doesn't actually do that. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, he does not say that he was disappointed in how much the wealthy were giving. And he doesn't say that they needed to give more. None of those things. Notice that he doesn't even say that the widow giving everything was good. He's actually silent on that point. So this is one of those passages that, that is somewhat difficult to preach. When the Bible doesn't give us a clear application for us to walk away with. The only thing that Jesus says is that she gave more than all the others. And the reason was because it cost her more. It cost her everything. And so as I was thinking through this passage this week, I do what I so often do. So I picked up my phone. I rang Thomas, who's right, his office is right below mine. And so he came up and we began to brainstorm and work through this together. And as I've told our elders even again this morning, that I'm still not sure that I understand this completely right. I want to make that confession to you today. So here's my encouragement to you. I want to encourage you to spend time thinking through what exactly Jesus wanted his disciples and consequently you and me to learn from this passage. But I'll give it a shot. Here is what we know. The subject in these four verses point us to giving. And in this case, it has to do with giving to the various needs of the temple and the works of God to which all of this money would go. 
The money would be uh, directed to to the works that God had commanded from these offerings. And it's like how the church operates today, both in terms of the needs of our building and the ministry and the care of the people and so on. And so here are a few takeaways that I think we can walk away with. But I'm not in any way stating this is it. I think there's more to this. But I want you to pray this through. And I'm asking you to ask the Lord to show you what he wants you to learn from this passage directly. But here's my attempt. A few things for us to consider. Number one, don't be discouraged if you can't give much. You see, the Bible does teach us that we ought to give to the work of the Lord and to the needs of the saints. Absolutely. Now, whereas under the old covenant tithing system, they were commanded to tithe not 10% only, but upwards to about 30% of of all they had. 30%. Now, in the New Testament... We're taught in, for example, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, as I was thinking this through, part of the discouragement when it comes to giving for a lot of people comes when we either compare our ability to give with those around us and we recognize, I can't give what they give. And so we have this degree of guilt that comes over us. Or secondly, it's because we have this rooted expectation that I must give at least 10% because that's what the Bible teaches, right? And I can't meet that expectation. And so we struggle with this. But as Jesus pointed out, I hope this will be an encouragement to us. For someone struggling to pay their bills, giving $2 is more than for someone who gives 2,000 when it doesn't affect their daily living. God sees that. In fact, we know what God can do with little. I mean, he can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000. That's miracle math. Right, So don't be discouraged if all you have to give is a toonie. Because God can take that toonie and make it much more than what you and I can with 2,000. I think as we think about it in this way, it should also influence us as to how we read the verse right before 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where we read that each one must give according to as he's decided in his heart. Because right before that, we read this. Whoever sows sparingly 
will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And I think, I think the way we typically interpret this from a human perspective is, oh, so if I give 2,000, God will bless me abundantly more than if I give $2. But if you're in the scenario, in the situation where you can't give the 2,000, then we read this, well, I gave sparingly because all I have is $2, so God won't bless me bountifully. But if we really take a look at this from the perspective of what we just saw in this passage, I think it should be interpreted in terms not in the amount given, but in the impact it has on you as to how much you give. How does what you give, how does that impact your daily life? That's the first thought. The second thought, so number one, don't be discouraged if you can't give much. Because as that old song goes, little is much, but God is in it. But secondly, if you are able to give much, don't be impressed by your giving if you don't feel it. Now, hear me out on this. This is not a statement to speak down to those who give generously out of their abundance. Not at all. And this is not saying that God is not pleased with your giving. It's not saying that God isn't pleased with you unless you give till it hurts. And he's not pleased with you if you don't give till it hurts. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. What I'm saying is that those who are able to give significantly greater amounts should not think of themselves more highly or judge those who can't. You see, God has each of us in different places for different reasons. And each should give as they can and should do so with a clear conscience, knowing that whether it's 2000 or $2, God is able to use them both to whatever degree he wants, and he will. From God's perspective, yes, the person giving $2 out of their poverty is giving more than the person giving 2000 when it has no consequential effect on them. That's my second thought. And here's the third one for your consideration. What does your faith in Jesus cost you? Think about this. When you love something, you invest in it. And one way or another, it costs us something. When a married couple decides they want to have children and the Lord blesses them with children... Because they love their children, they will sacrifice something from their lives from before they had kids. Whether it's free social time, whether it's the freedom to travel, whether it's the uninterrupted nights of sleep, there's a cost, right? There's a cost to having children. 
but it's an investment you're happy to make. If you enter into a marital relationship, there's an investment, there's a cost, but it's an investment you're happy to make. Part of that investment is that you no longer make the decisions that are solely based, that are best for yourself. The cost is now that you make decisions that are best for both of you and maybe better for your spouse than for yourself. But it's an investment you're happy to make because you love them. And we can apply this principle everywhere because we do this. Whatever we love, we invest in, and it comes at a cost to something else in our lives. Now, within this passage that we've looked at, although we're not told, I'm going to assume for a moment that the reason that this poor widow gave the little that she had was because of her faith and love for God. Although we're not told that, I'm going to assume that for a moment. And here's the thing. God is love. God is a loving God. This woman, we're going to assume, loved God, so she gave whatever she had. But God is also a loving God. And he loves us. And it came at a cost to him. He gave his best. He gave his only son. He gave everything. The son, Jesus, loved us and his father, and it came at a cost. His love for his father was the reason why he came and fulfilled the will of the Father. His love for his Father and his love for us cost him his life. He laid down his life because he loved us and he loved his Father. And he died in our place. So do you see that maybe perhaps the question we ought to be asking in light of this passage is this. What does my relationship with Jesus cost me? What's the investment for me? Now, I don't mean to turn this into some form of legalism. Say that if it doesn't come at a cost, then you're doing it wrong. That's not it at all. But there is this relative principle that if we love something or someone, we invest in it and it comes at a cost to us in one shape or form of another. So let's ask ourselves, what does my relationship with Jesus cost me? Now, let me apply this passage a little beyond just giving money. It should affect our financial offerings. Indeed, absolutely, it should. We've been commanded throughout the scriptures to give. 
But we shouldn't think that simply giving financially is all that's required. That's one element of many elements. You see, following Jesus may, and for most people, comes at a cost beyond money. When we look at the New Testament and we read the New Testament, when we see people who had faith in Jesus, it came at a cost. And what were some of the investments or the costs associated with loving and following Jesus? One of the first things we see is that the cost was broken relationships. Here's the thing. We don't want to give up relationships for Jesus. But when we look at the New Testament scriptures, that was one of the first things that we see that was paid. Relationships. Broken friendships. And even broken family relationships. I'm sometimes amazed in our day and in our context that although we love Jesus, we have faith in Jesus, that we find our family more important than Jesus himself. We trust him, we believe in him, but we don't want to be obedient to the point that it causes or costs me my relationship with my own family. But do you remember the words of Jesus? you do not hate mother or father or brother and sister more than me you are not worthy of the kingdom of God that's the investment you might think that's too much is it really is it really have you thought about the outcome of eternity there is no price that's too much he is worthy He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of the sacrifice of everything that I have for his name's sake. It's interesting that we applaud a Muslim who comes to faith in Christ who loses their family, and yet we're not willing to do the same with our own. Broken relationships. In the New Testament, we see that it cost them the investment was often their own livelihoods. The loss of their property, the loss of their jobs. We saw it cost them their freedom. They were persecuted and imprisoned. They lost their possessions and, yes, were even put to death for him. Perhaps we're too comfortable. I mean, I believe in the freedoms that we have in this country. I really do. But let me be very frank, and you can chastise me for this later on. But my goodness, did we begin to bellyache when we began to see things that we didn't like. Isn't it true? I did. I don't think you're that much different than me. Isn't Jesus worth the cost? We sing songs to him that magnify him, lift him up, and we say, worthy of it all. 
He is worthy of it all. And yet, I don't want to forsake. I don't want to lose my livelihood. I don't want to lose my home. I don't want to lose my, my extended family relationships because is he really that worthy? I'm happy to sing the song, but do I need to live it out? These are the thoughts that were ruminating in my mind as I was digging through this passage, trying to understand this rightly. And yes, if this is about giving financially. We see that here in this passage. But what a shame it would be if we kept it only to that thinking that he doesn't require any other sacrifice from me than financially. So let it be both. Let it be everything. What does our relationship with Jesus cost us materially? or physically, or relationally. What is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray. Father, here's what I pray for us this morning. I pray that we would not be under a false guilt or condemnation. What I do pray, Lord, is that this morning, your Holy Spirit would shine the light into our hearts and reveal to us areas in our lives, whether it's our finances or whether it's other areas of our lives, that we have not been willing to give sacrificially to you. Lord, keep us from false guilt. Keep us from legalism, even in this area here. But reveal our hearts. I believe this is about the heart, Lord. Show us our hearts. Show us, Lord, where we have kept things back from you. Show us areas in our lives where we've said, Lord, I'll sacrifice there, but not here. You are worthy, Lord. And I pray, Father, this morning that we would come and we would surrender all. Oh, because you are so worthy. The thing that we'll, we will behold when we come into your presence. I don't think there will be a moment when we see you where we will have that thought, oh, I didn't need to give. I didn't need to give that up for you. I think when we see you face to face, I think we may look back and we would have said, we would say, oh, I wish I would have surrendered it all. So this morning, Lord, this morning, would you show us what we have kept from you? Show us, Lord, what we ought to give to you. Show us in our hearts where we may think, even though if we um, never really crossed our minds before, show us, Lord, 
where we need to invest or pay the cost of our relationship with you because you are worthy. And may we truly be able to say, Lord, I've surrendered all in Jesus' name. Amen.